Hello and welcome to Black, Brown, and Bilingue, where our mission is to unite the black and brown communities through education, storytelling, and community engagement. The vision of Black, Brown, and Bilingue is to be part of creating a world in which Black and Brown identities are affirmed, bilingualism and biculturalism are nurtured, and equity is the driving force behind all that we do. Thank you for joining us again today. I am Lisette Jacobson, and I am one of your hosts. And I'm Maurice McDavid. I'm your other host. Welcome to another episode of Black, Brown, and Bilingue. We are thrilled to have Lou Rocha here with us today. She is a bilingual licensed clinical social worker. She has a Master of Social Work from the Jane Addams School of Social Work at University of Illinois in Chicago, and a Master of Arts from DePaul University in Women's Issues and Violence Against Women. She is the founder of Multicultural Consulting Services, a for-profit business dedicated in helping institutions make their services accessible to everyone. Lou has a group practice based in the city of Chicago that is dedicated to addressing trauma from a cultural perspective. Lou's professional aspiration is to support the growth of providers of color in the mental health field so that communities of color can have more options in obtaining services that align to their cultural beliefs and values. For more than 20 years, Lou has worked with community members from a variety of cultural and ethnic backgrounds. She has provided services to individuals who have experienced and or witnessed family and community violence or who have harmed others. Lastly, Lou co-authored a book called Nuestras Historias, Our Stories, that documents the experiences of Latinas with gender-based violence. Lastly, Lou identifies as a Latina with indigenous roots, firstborn generation in the United States, and the proud daughter of a Bracero. Welcome, Lou. Hi, thank you for having me. We are just absolutely ecstatic to have you on today. Um, and again, we've had an opportunity to talk through this topic a little bit and share some of our personal experiences. Um, but today we want to really hear from you, a professional in the field. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about how you wound up in the mental health field? Um, sure. But before I, I, I say anything, um, I want to first um, acknowledge the original caretakers of this land, which are the um, nations of the Great Lakes. I am a guest on this land and I am humbled to be um, here and to be a guest. So yes, um, the question was, how did I get started on mental health? Um, my well, that's a good question. Now that I'm thinking about it, um, I started with um, doing work with individuals who have been um, survivors, victims of gender-based violence, domestic violence, sexual assault. And one of the things that um, I saw was that many of the women that I worked with identified as Latinas. Um, were not getting the appropriate support that I felt at the time that they should have gotten. It was very much um, from a lens of um, a white lens, mainstream lens, that when a individual causes harm on someone else, um, 
the process is very much about going into the legal system. The person who has been harmed has to leave their, um, the perpetrator of, of the violence or their abuser, in many cases their partner. And um, I felt that that was not always going to be um, possible for, for many reasons. And many of the reasons were cultural reasons. And then from that, I um, started um, my journey in looking into trauma. And that's mostly what I do. I do a lot of work in trauma. And again, I saw that trauma um, was addressed from a mainstream lens, um, predominantly um, a Western lens. And so, again, I felt that trauma has, was not um, being addressed in a way that was accessible to me as a woman of color, but also um, accessible to the other people that I was supporting through my work. Um, and so in, in my journey into mental health, that was not what I wanted to do. I never wanted to be a social worker because I had been harmed by, um, by that field. Um, as many people of color have been harmed by this system, by this institution, by the mental health um, field. I, um, they used to call me the reluctant social worker when I, my classmates would call me the reluctant social worker because I, even to this day, I don't call myself a social worker. Um, but I felt that as a woman of color that um, I, had to, I had to do what I had to do, which is I had to go to school. I had to get the the letters behind my name in order to get the license, in order to practice and to provide support to community members in a way that was, for me, was more applicable to our needs. So um, I felt that in a way to support my community um, would be best if I was to provide mental health services because um, everything that I did from organizing to activism, to advocacy, it always came down to how um, people were feeling about themselves, how people were feeling about the situation. And um, so I just, I kind of just fell into it. I, again, I was not wanting to go into that, into this field. Um, so yeah, so long answer, winded answer for, I had no choice. <laughs> <laughs> You know, something that intrigues me about your experience is um, how you've merged cultural identity, racial identity into your practice. Um, and I think because you are a Latina, you, you had that perspective. Did your family have any sort of response to um, you getting into this mental health field or, or friends? Did they have a response? Like, how were they, what were their attitudes about it? So um, a lot of my work has been in organizing. A lot of my work has been in advocacy, um, very much about not following the mainstream, very much about creating, um, creating, creating projects that were not part of, part of, a, of a system, part of an institution. So I can tell you some, from some of my colleagues that I worked with, when I did tell them that I wanted to go into the mental health field, when I did tell them that um, I was 
trying to get my license so that I can be uh, a clinician and work on my own was very negative. They said they felt um, many comments were I was going to the other side. Um, but I understood, the, you know, and what I explained in the beginning, these institutions have caused harm, especially on um, communities of color. So I understood the response. Um, at the time, I was hurt, but it took a while for me to kind of just accept it. My family, um, you know, my, my family, my husband and my, and my children, they're very supportive. Um, my extended family, um, I guess it's just like many families in, well, I don't want to generalize, but the, my experience with Latino families, um, that mental health is um, for, you don't focus on mental health unless you're, you're, you're rich and you're white. Um, we don't have time to kind of look at our problems. You know, you pray to God, um, you, you know, you pull yourself up from the bootstraps, you continue on. We don't have that luxury. Um, and so it's kind of, a, yeah, that's great. Um, but are you going to be able to pay your bills? Are you going to be able to pay your mortgage? Um, or are you going to be poor? Like, you know, like mm -hmm. the rest of us. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't want to say they're not supportive, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't like, great, yay, you're going to be in mental health. It was like, okay. Mm -hmm. So, you know. That, that just hit home <laughs> so much right now when I, when I tell you that similarly, right? You, I mean, becoming an educator. You're, I appreciate that you're going to go help them kids, but are they paying you? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, and um, in fact, I had uh, um, my, my older brother said to me, he said, Maurice, you're bilingual and black. You could go and make X amount of money doing this, that, and the other. And, and um, so I think that there is something to be said about the calling Right. The the and then, like you said, I have to get these letters in order to be able to help in this way. Um, and so I, I definitely uh, appreciate um, so much those those thoughts. Um, and again, that really hit home uh, for for me. You know, what else hit home is, is when you said um, we're supposed to be able to pray and our problems suddenly go away. Mm -hmm. And that's something that Maurice and I have both have had to grapple with mm -hmm. and, and really having that internal struggle, at least for me, that, you know, praying wasn't sufficient. I knew that I needed more. And I was very fortunate to have a, a therapist who understood the role that um, culture played in my mental well-being. Um, can you speak to how you feel like your uh, identity shaped the work that you do? And ha do you think it contributed to your success as a social worker? And um, are, are you bilingual as well? Or? Yes, I'm bilingual. Do you think, you know, how do you think those things have played a role in your success? Well, um, as a therapist, um, I think you can't not um, have, your identity cannot not influence your work. As an educator, as a therapist, as a physician, as a police officer, it cannot not influence um, how you present yourself in that field. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm very much aware of that, and I am grateful for that. Um, my, the way my identity and my experience um, I recently did um, 
with the help of a professor at the School of Public Health at UIC, helped me create some questions for a satisfaction survey for my clients because one of the things that I hope to do in my from my experience in my practice is to use what I call, um, I already coined it, DIT, diversity inclusivity therapy, which is um, looking at mental health as healing process, looking at um, um, therapy as support, and looking at different modalities on how to help people in their healing process. And so what does that mean? That means, um, in my experience, as an organizer and activist, um, I know how it is to be out there and to be advocating for change for social justice. I would say about 50%, if not more, of the clients that I support are activists, um, organizers, um, advocates. And so it, and one of the questions in this questionnaire was I asked them, does that help you? Does it help you to have a therapist who has this past experience? And they, and those who identify as organizers and activists have said yes, because I don't have to explain to her. I don't have to explain to her how you have to be out there, that you have to give 110% in order to be valued as an organizer, that you can't um, take care of yourself because that's being selfish, the guilt that that brings on. And so... Um, Myself being a very spiritual person, I don't subscribe to a religion, but I do follow the indigenous ways of here in the Great Lakes area. Um, I'm very much about bringing spirituality into the practice. And so if I have someone who is a Santera, which is a religion that's practiced, that was brought from Africa to the Americas during the time of slavery and is still practiced now in certain parts of Latin America, um, here in the United States in the Caribbean, um, where they have um, different um, gods that they pray to, different saints that they, they bring, um, they pray to for assistance. Um, I have people who identify as santeros, and so I'm like, bring the spirits in. Can we bring the spirits in to see if they can support you in this challenge that you're facing? Can you ask the spirits to be with you and accompany you as you're walking on this road of, of healing. Um, I do a lot of psychoeducation, um, understanding mental health. Um, that had helped me in understanding how trauma has affected my body and my brain. So I do, very, I do a lot of education with my clients. I tell them about the prefrontal cortex, about the amygdala, the nervous system, the um, vagus nerve, so that they understand that when you are um, anxious or stressed or if you have experienced a trauma, how that affects you as your person. All of those um, methods have helped me. All of that, all of those um, methods have helped me in my own healing process. And because I do identify as the first generation born here in the United States, I understand what it is to be othered. I'm othered every Every time, the minute I walk out the door, I know that I am, you know, seen as, a, as someone other than someone that belongs in this country. Maybe not by everyone, but I know this. And so I know that that affects my identity. So when I'm working with individuals, especially black and brown community members, I know that that's part of their identity. I know that's part of their existence. So we talk about that. We talk about historical 
historical trauma. And historical trauma can be anywhere from the time of colonization to the time of slavery to what just happened a minute ago, because that's what historical trauma is, Mm -hmm. especially when you're talking to individuals who have been marginalized for generations and generations. I tell clients when we walk, every time a client walks in the room with me, they walk in with a backpack and an invisible backpack of stuff that they carry. And some of the stuff belongs to them and some of the stuff belongs to their grandmothers, their great-great-grandmothers, aunties, and their ancestors. And so part of the healing is what stuff belongs to you, what stuff can you let go, or what stuff can you look through and keep so that you can use it in this journey of healing. And so that's my identity, and that's what I bring in the room when I sit with people and I support them. Yeah, so you, you just uh, talked about it a little bit, um, this idea of historical trauma or intergenerational trauma. Um, it's you know, different. Intergenerational trauma and historical trauma is different. Okay, Inter- per- yeah, perfect. I, I, if, if, can you talk to that a little bit? I, I was, you know, on the website, um, um, and, and again, we'll share your website out when we share out this, um, this episode, um, but your website is put together beautifully with, you know, lots of different little information you can get just by clicking on the website. So can you share a little bit about the difference between those two, and then maybe in what ways they show up in particular in the black and brown communities? Mm-hmm. So um, historical trauma was coined by Dr. Maria Yellow Horse Braveheart. She's a Lakota woman in the, right now, I, I believe she's still at the University of New Mexico. She, is, um, she was a social worker by trade. She um, saw that when working with her community, um, there were a lot of um, issues of, domestic violence, of alcoholism, um, suicide, and she, um, when she decided to do her PhD, her, um, she spoke with her advisor, and um, they, she said, you know, I, I believe that this is an, an effect, this is a response, a historical, a historical traumatic response to everything that's happened to my community as a result of the genocide when the Europeans came to invade the Americas. And um, so she has this whole model of understanding and embracing the trauma and then healing from the trauma. And healing can be anything from it's, it's ceremonies, it's, you know, um, traditions and rituals that were um, outlaw until recently in the um, late 70s, 1970s, um, as a way of healing. And then is what do you do after that? How do you move forward? And so that's historical trauma when it's a cumulative um, emotional and psychological damage to a group of people, right? So in her, in her example was the Lakota, um, you know, the indigenous people. Um, with um, black people, it's the, the of slavery. It's, a, it's, it's what's happened to a group of people. As an effect, as a, as a, as a result of that, we see intergenerational um, trauma. So, for instance, what she was saying, there's, um, there's a time in the Native American community that there was the boarding schools. And the boarding schools was a, a policy by U- U.S. government um, to separate children from their families to uh, make them um, more American. And so to 
to push out the savage of them. So they wouldn't allow these children to speak their language. Um, they would cut their hair. They would not allow them to um, practice their traditions. And so it was try- it, they, they literally beat um, their identity out of them. Um, there's reports of physical, sexual abuse. Um, I've spoken with many survivors, elders who um, are survivors of the boarding school. Um, and, you know, they still carry that trauma. But as a result of that trauma, um, because many of these children were not able to grow up with their families, when they came back to their community, they did not, first of all, they couldn't communicate with their elders or even with their parents because they no longer knew their language. They um, had suffered the trauma, the physical and sexual trauma. And so when they then had families, they were unable to be parents because what they learned in the boarding schools was how to physically and sexually and emotionally and mentally hurt And so they pass that on then to their children. And so we have children who are survivors of parents who survived the boarding schools. And so that trauma is passed on. And and so what um, um, Maria Yellowhorse Braveheart was saying and says is that that is an impact. And so, and when you see your people on TV um, misrepresented, and then that, that is affecting how you see yourself in the Native American community. That is an impact that can, that can impact your identity. Um, if there's on the reservation, there's 70% um, unemployment, then that impacts how you look at your future um, or even if you have a future. And so everything that happened in the, in the history, and even till now, we have the Dakota Access Pipeline that they're still fighting for, right? For clean water and access to their land. Um, that then has an impact on how people then are acting towards each other or, or passing that on, that trauma onto their children. Does that make sense? Yeah. Thank you for that distinction. Um, and thank you for bringing awareness, especially Um, In regards to indigenous populations, I don't feel like we do a good job, especially in the American public school system, in talking enough about that genocide, because that's what it was. It was genocide. And we definitely do not do it justice. So first, thank you for for sharing that with us. And two, um, I like how you still bring it to today, because these things are still happening today. And 2020 has been, I think, a very difficult year on so many levels. I'm wondering if you have seen an uptick in, like, the need for services, and do you see more people of color um, seeking mental health support? And um, if there's any stigma still lingering, what do you attribute that to? Yeah. So 2020 has been a year of um, reflection, I think, for many people. Um, um, One of the things that I, when I um, talk with other clinicians or when I present um, on historical trauma is I I tell people we are living historical trauma right now Um, because what we see and what we're experiencing right now, we're going to carry with us for for many, many years and for some generations. 
my right now what we're seeing is an increase of anxiety an increase of um, people relapsing who were on recovery from addiction um, because of the isolation um, suicide rates are said to be going up domestic violence is going up because um, of not wanting to ask for help um, either because they're afraid of the police or because they don't want to be in, you know, if you're the survivor, you don't want to leave your home and go to a shelter and possibly be exposed to COVID. Um, so there has been an increase for need of mental health services. I think especially um, in the black and brown communities um, for many, many reasons. Um, if you're a black person, I cannot even imagine seeing someone else being killed, who looks like you, sounds like you, probably has a very similar story as yours. That to me has to be the most traumatic experience for a black person. And then I think about the black children, the black children seeing this happening to an adult that looks like maybe their father or their uncle or their, or their auntie. That is what I'm afraid of, is what is this causing onto this, the younger children? Then I think about, um, I work with a lot of people who are undocumented, people who are DACA recipients. You know, just because people have the DACA does not mean that they're home safe. Every month, people are waiting. What's going to happen? I mean, even after the Supreme Court decision, that was not because DACA was going to stay. It was just right now, it's just safe. But we saw that the administration already made changes on the DACA and how to renew your DACA application. And many of the DACA recipients cannot afford that new fee and increase, right? And so in, in the communities that I serve, like I said, the majority of my clients are community of, identify as people of color. Um, the anxiety that they are experiencing, um, the hopelessness, um, the, they are afraid. Some of my clients have come from countries where there have been coups, where governments have been um, um, fascist, where governments have done um, you know, lockdowns. And, and so this, they are saying, this is exactly what happened in my country. What you all need to wake up. And so, and I, and I hear them, you know, I, I totally hear them and I, and I am afraid for us too. Right. But um, you can't have two, two people afraid at one time. Right. So I got to kind of keep calm myself. But the fact is that more people are coming for services. Um, I'm in the process right now of hiring more therapists because I'm at capacity. I can't see more people. I really thought that, um, that when the pandemic um, surged and we were doing stay at home, I thought, oh, I'm going to close shop. I'm going to lose my clients. Um, although I offered to my clients, I can still see you for free. Um, my main concern is that you get mental health support. Um, but it actually grew to the point that I have to expand my practice. Um, the stigma, um, I think that when people ask me, like, you know, I wish my mom would come and talk to you. But she says, why am I going to talk to somebody and tell them my business? Nobody needs to know what's going on at home, right? 
And, you know, I tell people, listen, we've always had trauma. We've always had problems. Does your mom go ever gone to a curandera? And for us, curandera Mm -hmm. is a healer, Mm -hmm. right? When I was growing up, we would not go to the doctor. We would go to Doña Crucita, who was the curandera down the street (laughs) for a sobada. And it's a little massage or she would make some kind of remedy and we would drink it. And if it didn't work, and if we were still dying of pain, then we would go to a doctor. And so I tell people, if your mom ever went to a curandero or has gone to a curandero, that's a healer. If your family member has ever gone to a pastor, a preacher, a priest, that's a healer. Healers can look differently. Therapists can look differently. And so I always tell people that I am just another person in the community that I will keep it confidential. I won't judge. Um, and I can, you, we can just sit here and talk about what you want to talk about and I can give some suggestions. And so I, and I think also because the community, um, because I've had a number of years of working in communities, I would say about 80% of the clients that I have have been referred through community. Um, and so I think it's this, this, this thing of trust uh, because they know that, you know, I've told, I've told my clients, listen, I might be in the same rallies as you are. I might be in this, at the same, you know, protest as you are. That's, that's who I am. Um, and they're fine with it. In fact, I have clients that before pre-pandemic would meet in the waiting room and they would know each other and they would hug and they were like, oh my God, I haven't seen you for a while. And, you know, clients would say, that is it's so wonderful to come to a place where I, it's, it's, you know, people, I know people who come and see you. Um, I know you know what's happening in my community. And I think that's the most important thing is that because they, they see me talk in the community, they've they seen me in these protests, they see other community members coming and going from my office, that they feel like it's like another space, it's like another gathering. Um, and so I think that helps to destigmatize the mental health. You know, you just said something. You just gave me like an aha moment. And um, one of the biggest things that I see with particularly our Latino students is that we're largely a um, communal uh, group of people or and, and, you know, so it's like. When we think of mental health, we think of the individual and everything has to be very confidential. But here, what you're describing sounds a lot like community Mm -hmm. and how important that is for people of color. And um, that just kind of really rocked my world right there because I kept thinking of how confidential everything was for when I went. But I think I would have appreciated being in a community like that, talking about healing. And then I thought about you, Maurice, um, because you are a preacher. And, um, and when she described that, it's like, oh, you too can be a healer. <laughs> so so I, I, I think as a young person, as, as, as someone who, you know, I had felt this call to, to preach, to be a preacher and, and to be someone who would help and guide people spiritually. Um, I definitely looked at counseling as as a potential pathway and honestly have still considered it. I, I love what I do. I love being a principal. 
And, and I think I get to do a lot of that in both this job uh, and in this job, you know, sometimes it's staff, sometimes it's students, sometimes it's parents. Um, and, and certainly in my job as a youth pastor, you know, I've had those, those real conversations. Mm-hmm. I guess I had never really thought of myself, though, you know, as a, another uh, image of that, that, that healer. And I, I appreciate um, that, you know, I think, too, um, just that it's important um, to acknowledge that there are similarities and there are differences between the Black and the Latino community. I appreciate um, your acknowledgement of the fact that, that, like, to watch these videos, right, these videos that go viral, to watch them, uh, it's, it's, it's horrifying. It, it really is. I think that's what gave me my first experience with true anxiety was watching um, the video uh, in May um, in, in Minneapolis and seeing that um, uh, uh, George Floyd, that, that really did something. Um, but I, I, I mentioned all of this because I, I wonder, um, you know, one of the, the kind of ongoing themes that Lissette and I talk about is this, um, black-brown divide um, that can show up sometimes. Um, and I know, um, you know, that we're, we're running low on time, um, but, but can, you, can you just talk a little bit about maybe if you've seen any of that, you know, in, in your practice, what that looks like, um, and what are some ways that we can, you know, unite recognizing we have, you know, interge- intergenerational and historical trauma that probably weaves in together more than apart. Yeah, and how, yeah, I was going to say, how can we heal that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I've seen this for, um, I'm a lot older than you are. This has been going on for a long, long time. Um, I was very fortunate when I grew up. Um, I grew up in, a, in well, maybe it wouldn't, wasn't fortunate, but I, grew, I was fortunate that I grew up in a very um, diverse community. And diverse meaning that there were about five families of color and the rest were all white families. So we had to stick together. So there were Puerto Ricans, Blacks, and Mexicans, and French Creoles. And so that was it. We were it. And so um, I, I, I grew up in that, in that environment. And so for me to see this divide, um, I, I have seen it for some time. It was, kind, it's, it, it was always been difficult for me to see it, but I think because I have seen how it is not to be, um, to be in the mix with, you know, you had to stick together in order to survive in that neighborhood. Um, so I've seen this. I've seen that when Harold Washington was mayor of, of Chicago, um, he actually brought together black and brown community members. Um, and that was a great example of how you can bring people together and make change. Um, I think, and, I, and, and, and that, that lasted for a while, but I think that this recent, uh, and I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but this recent uprise that happened in May, um, and then it, it, it turned to rioting, then it turned to, to looting, or it was three different groups. There's the protesters, rioters, and then looters, right? Because you can't mix the three up. Um, and so as a result, in the Latino community in Chicago, there were a lot of attacks against black people. Um, 
I got calls from community members. I got calls from my clients saying um, that they're beating, that, you know, I have, I have to hide my black friends in the car and get them back home. There are black people who are living in, in um, these Latino neighborhoods who are being harassed, being beaten up. I mean, it was horrible. Um, I, I was asked um, by um, a community member, a Latina, she, she was crying to me and she was like, I can't believe my community is doing this to black people. And so she asked me if I would participate in a healing ceremony. I'm a pipe carrier. I was, I was gifted a pipe, uh, community pipe by my elders in, uh, in, um, in Wisconsin. And so she knows this. And so I, I was invited to help with that along with uh, another woman who's a Santera and some other people at Humboldt Park to kind of just bring the black and brown community members together to heal. That was a beautiful event. Um, I wish there were more events like that. Um, I think we need that. But I think going back to history, we need to see why there's so much um, anti-blackness in the Latino community. We have to go back to how we have been taught on how to look at color. We have so much colorism in our culture. When the Europeans came, we had a caste system. And the caste system was based on how much European blood you had, how much African blood, and how much indigenous blood. There was a caste system. And if you Google it, caste system in Latin America, you will see at least 10 to 15 different types of caste. And so the more European blood you had, the more access to resources you had. It's the same thing that happened here in the United States, right? And so... That was taught to us that the lighter skin you are, the better you are, the better off you will be, right? I don't, I understand why people continue that method of thinking. It's a way of surviving. It's a way of getting access to food, education, housing, medical care. I understand that. However, we need to go past that because we need to acknowledge that our minds have been colonized and we have to uncolonize our minds, right? And the, the bottom line is we all look the same to the oppressors, right? Um, and we're and and we're and it's and if we don't if we don't stick together like those five families that I grew up with that we looked out for ourselves, then we're just going to be fighting for crumbs that they're throwing at us. I also think that we have to realize that, um, that black people have an opinion of Latinos. They have an opinion that Latinos come here and they take away jobs. They have an opinion that Latinos um, take jobs for very little money. Um, and that that's why the minimum wage is so low or, or jobs don't pay enough. Instead of saying, why are people being exploited? Why are people being paid this low wages? And so I think there, this is something that I've been trying to encourage black and brown communities to do before um, the um, before the, the pandemic, is we need to talk about this. We need to be uncomfortable. That's fine. We need to realize our anti-Latinoism, our anti-Blackness, in order to get to this point that we can work together. Um, 
And so, and, you know, I, we just have a lot of work to do, but I think it's a lot of self-reflection. It's a lot about what are my beliefs, right? I have to work on my anti-blackness. I have to work on my own colorism. I have to work on how how to decolonize my own way of thinking in order for me to be able to, you know, stand there and try to, you know, um, ask people to have these difficult conversations. And that's a day-to-day day-to-day effort that, that I have to do. Um, that's extremely well said. I, you know, I, I like the quote that we all look alike to the oppressor and that ultimately we're fighting for the crumbs that they're giving us and really having to drive the conversation up to the systems, right? Maurice pointed that out that, you know, we often just don't, uh, we stick to the person to person level, but really, you know, like you pointed out with the minimum wage, instead of resenting the immigrant who, can, who is being, who is being exploited for, for their work, let's talk about the system that is perpetuating that. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that Maurice and I are very interested in doing in our work as educators is, um, doing like a unity event or like a healing event because we see that um, divide in the schools and um, because we are a largely Latino school district, but we still have, um, you know, black families and you can see the tension. Any advice for us on, you know, how do we begin to at least plant that seed of unity with, with the two communities? Well, what part of the town are you all in? Because that has a lot to do with the history of the community, right? So, for instance, if you're talking about the back of the yards community, that's, you know, that has a whole history in itself of when the black people move in, when the Latino families move in, who was moving out, what would, uh, you know, compared to Inglewood, right? Um, or compared to the Humble Park area where there were, you know, um, you know, there were Puerto Ricans there versus, you know, there, there weren't as many Mexicans. So it, it really depends on, on the area that you're talking about. So understanding the history of the community, right? Understanding of who are the, the families there. Understanding if it was a predominantly black community, what what is their impression about Latinos moving in, right? Um, if it's predominantly a Latino community, what are their um, issues about black people moving in, right? I think um, I think a lot has to do with what are we exposing ourselves to, right? So, for instance, if we're talking about um, children, if we're talking about young folks, what are they learning about the Latino community, right? Um, What are um, we learning about, you know, the black community? Um, You know, we have, you know, right now, I think it's the Hispanic um, Heritage Month, right? Um, Understanding even the terms we use, what what does Hispanic mean, right? Why is that different from Chicano? Why is that different from Latino? Why is that different from, you know, whatever? Understanding even, um, you know, who are um, the important people in Chicago and the black communities that have contributed to um, our history, to 
our growth as a city. It's not just in the month of February. Let's start talking about this um, as you know, regular conversations. I know of people who have written books about some very powerful black women on the south side of Chicago. Why are we not talking about those women? I didn't even know about those women, right? Um, talking about, you know, the indigenous folks, the original indigenous folks here and understanding that, you know, like I said in the beginning, I am okay. I am a guest on this land. This is not my land, right? Um, and what brought us here? Understanding the history that brought us here and understanding that, um, you know, there are more, you know, we always say there are more similarities than differences. But I think when you're talking about the Black and Latino community, there are more similarities than there are differences, right? Um, and I think, you know, I think just having open conversations. And I think when we're talking about children or young folks having these conversations, I think adults first have to be comfortable in having those conversations before they can have it with, with young folks. And so I, I would say, you know, with the families is, you know, doing more events together, maybe finding out your, your leaders within your community. There always, there's always some women out there, especially women who are the shakers in the community. And those are the women that the rest of the, the other families are going to follow and the families are going to listen to. And if they see a couple of women from the black community, a couple of women from the Latino community working together, then I think that's where you start. You have to start small. You can't expect for change to happen with the whole, with the whole community. I don't think so. Beautifully said, beautifully said. I, I'm, I'm really excited about taking and, and working to mold and apply some of the things that, that we've heard today. So we really appreciate it. As we get ready to close things out, it is our tradition here on Black, Brown, and Bilingue um, to ask our, our guest um, for just one final thing. If there's one thing you want the listeners to walk away with today, um, uh, as we go into celebrating, um, remembering, uh, acknowledging, uh, spreading the word around um, Mental Health Awareness Week, um, what what would that what would that be um, that you'd want to share with our listeners? You know, when we talk about mental health, I think in this culture we always try to separate. <laughs> mental health and physical health and spiritual health, right? And I, I, it's all one thing. It's, it, you cannot separate. You cannot be in silos. And so when we take care of our bodies, we're taking care of our minds. When we take care of our minds, it's going to affect our bodies. So I think, you know, keeping that in mind that right now we're going through a very, very difficult time in history with this pandemic and it's affecting people, different people, different ways, depending on um, what community you belong to. Um, and so, you know, anxiety is just a way for your body to say there's, you know, there's danger or there's something to be worried about um, and concerned about. So understanding that it's a normal reaction, but if it gets to be too much that it's interfering with your, with your day-to-day um, -day responsibilities, to so ask for help and help can be anywhere from going to 
um, an elder can be going to uh, a preacher, a priest, curandera, um, some other form of healer to just, you know, ask them for their support. Um, I always tell people to practice gratitude because right now we are in a time that we see a lot of negative going around us. We are anxious um, for, for good reason. There's an upcoming election that um, many people are anxious about um, or people are afraid. But there are also beauty. There's also beauty around us. Um, I am, a, a, like I said, I'm a, I'm a spiritual person. And in, my, in what I've learned that every creation is a gift from the creator. So if you're able to go out and feel the wind in your face, be grateful for that. If you're able to see a tree and the leaves turning different colors, give gratitude for that. If you're able to get up in the morning and stand on your own two feet, that is something to be grateful for. And so there are many things that we can be grateful for. If you can begin your day that way, if you can end your day that way, it would make this journey that we're going through less stressful, less, um, less painful. Um, because I think it's easy for us to see all the, all the pain and to all the injustices, but it, makes, it takes effort to see all the beauty around us. And I think we do have a lot of beauty. We just need to, to pay attention and maybe look a little harder, but there is beauty. Thank you for that. That was, that was awesome. I, I got to say, I, I learned a new word today. I, I did not know curandera. And I, I, so I've never been to a curandera. But uh, my grandmama was the one. She, she, come here, baby. I'm gonna rub this, this, you know, something on your chest, and you gonna yep. feel better. Or rub this on your feet. Put the socks on. Yep. <laughs> and so, yep. And so yep. we, it's yes, we all have it, right? Thank we you so much. We all have it. We all have it. We, we've had these tools with us. I, I tell my clients, you know, we as a people have existed because we've always had healers in our community. Um, they may not have letters behind their names, but if these traditions have lasted for generations and generations, it's because it's helped. Either because it's, it's actually doing something or psychologically you think it's, it's helping you. It doesn't matter. If smudging makes you feel good, then smudging it is, right? Mm-hmm. You do what, what, what hopefully has been passed down to you because it is a way of not only honoring those people who've passed it on, but it's also a way of, of, of honoring those people and for me as a person of color to be able to practice traditions that, you know, have forcefully been trying, been taken away from us is for me a, a sign of resistance, that we are still existing as peoples, that we still have these traditions as peoples and, and we need these, these, these traditions and practices in order to continue on. Beautiful. That what a great way to end this episode. And uh, as an aside, Maurice, I do the egg cleanse. You know, I do those. <laughs> so if you're ever feeling, you know, like you need something, then uh, let me know. <laughs> All right. So thank you so much again, Lou, for being with us. It was really a pleasure, and um, we hope to be in touch. For Black, Brown, and Bilingual, I am Lisette Jacobson. 
And I'm Maurice McDavid. Muchas gracias for tuning in. Thank you.